Hello, all you hardheads. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are in this wonderful world of ours. Welcome to the Hardheaded Sports Podcast, episode number 31, hosted by me, Nick Ryan, and an extra special emphasis on the good morning part of the intro this morning. It's about 9 o'clock in the morning. Normally, I start recording the podcast around 10.30, 11, 11.30, even 12 o'clock if I'm running a little extra late. But today, we're going to get an early start on the show because I have been representing Team No Sleep this morning. I've been up since about 12.30 this morning, could not get back to sleep. I was really drowsy earlier yesterday, and I think that had some kind of side effects or something to do with the side effects of me getting my first uh, COVID vaccination, the first dose of the COVID vaccination. There have been reports or some side effects reported, especially within my friend group, that it makes me feel a little bit drowsy. So I was definitely feeling drowsy yesterday. And I decided to go to bed a little bit early, and I ended up just waking up at 1230 in the morning and not being able to get back to sleep. So as unfortunate as that is, it is going to allow us to get, or allow me rather, to get an early start to my day. It's going to allow me to re- record the podcast a little bit sooner. But alas, I am still a little bit tired. <laughs> so if I sound tired today, it's because I am. I'm going to try and keep things a little bit more low energy today. I'm going to try and keep the points and the show itself a little bit more concise and a little bit more together. Normally, I like being a little bit more upbeat, trying to be loud, not necessarily obnoxious, but loud, upbeat, and fun. But we're going to take a relaxed day. We're going to have a chill Sunday, so to speak. And we're going to power through the show so we can all get back to watching this incredible March Madness tournament. I've been gushing about the March Madness tournament pretty much every single show since the March Madness tournament started. Uh, It's been a fantastic tournament, and I really just want to get the show over with so I can go watch more basketball. I don't know what that says about me. I'm certainly not going to half-ass anything, but regardless of that, we're going to be talking some more uh, NFL free agency today. We're going to continue to give grades for every single NFL team continuing today, as promised, with the AFC South. Then we're going to move over to basketball, talk a little bit about some more free agency, not free agency, excuse me, talking about the NBA trade deadline. Some of the final moves that happened during the the NBA trade deadline, we already talked at length, granted, really, more about the Orlando Magic and their confusing rebuild decision to, that they decided to go on as the trade uh, trade deadline was expiring. And then we're going to talk about the massive shakeup in the NFL draft order that happened the other day. The Dolphins, the 49ers, and Eagles making a couple of moves to move around in the draft order, shaking up the top 10. And now things are going to get a little bit interesting, ladies and gentlemen. We'll talk about what that means for not only the Dolphins, 49ers, and Eagles, but what that means for the rest of the teams drafting within the top 10. But first, today... We are, as promised, going to be continuing our grades for every NFL team's free agency, offseason, moves, acquisitions, however you want to put it. We're going to be continuing that today, and that is what we're going to start the show with. So continuing to give grades for every NFL team's free agency acquisitions this offseason, now going to the AFC South. The AFC South was actually really interesting to research for this segment because both the Colts and the Jaguars had an enormous amount of cap space uh, for this offseason, and Very interesting to look at the difference in philosophy between those two teams. The Jaguars, of course, completely rebuilding had close to, what, $71 million in cap space at the start of free agency. And the Colts, likewise, had about $30, $35 million in cap space. And whereas the Jaguars were able to go in a little bit of a spending spree, the Colts decided not to do so as much. And I thought that was extremely interesting considering where these two teams are in their current franchise state the Colts obviously nearly beat the Bills in the wild card round of the playoffs last season 
and uh, the Jaguars are rebuilding. And it's 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 funny to me how the Jaguars were the team that went out and got pieces to try and obviously get themselves in, back in playoff contention as opposed to the Colts that really just kind of re-signed a couple of key guys and didn't make any further moves with the cap space that they had. So I found that extremely interesting. And while we're just talking about the Colts, let's let's go ahead and, and start with them. The Colts entered this offseason, as I said, being one of the few teams that had a lot of cap space, even with the depreciated salary cap. And that should be a huge win for the franchise, you would think. And many people, including myself, were thinking, okay, the Colts were a drive away from beating the Bills in that playoff game. This this team is looking to be a Super Bowl sleeper next season, and if they can get a quarterback and get some more pieces, they can be real contenders. And they did get a quarterback, but a risky one, and they didn't really spend any of their money. They've lost a, cue, uh, a, a few key pieces, such as Anthony Walker, linebacker. He just signed with Cleveland, I believe, but they haven't really spent any money to fill holes elsewhere, uh, especially on the defensive side of the ball. They did trade for Carson Wentz, as I said, which is a trade slash signing if you really want to count it as part of your free agency offseason acquisitions it's something that's going to be debated and talked about on every sports show every podcast from here to there for the majority of the offseason until we actually get to see Carson Wentz in a Colts uniform we don't necessarily want to cast aspirations just yet as to where that whether that's a good signing or not at most we can say right now it's a controversial signing based on what he has done in the past few seasons and then, of course, as I said, to begin the segment, they signed a few, uh, a few key pieces uh, back with the Colts. T.Y. Hilton signing a one-year $8 million contract. Marlon Mack signing again. Xavier Rhodes signing a one-year $6 million. So they re-signed some of their key veteran players for one-year deals. You know, this offseason for Indianapolis kind of reminds me as a kid when you would get your allowance from your parents. And your parents would tell you not to go and spend it all in one place. I'm sure most of us have heard that saying before. And now normally that's good advice, but I think the Colts took it a little bit too liberally here. Uh, they did re-sign some key guys for cheap, but they didn't really add anyone when they're on the precipice of a strong playoff run. And I'm assuming that Chris Ballard is going to save that $35, $39 million to re-sign some key players down the road. Quentin Nelson, um, Darius Leonard. I'm sure that that's money going to come useful in terms of re-signing those guys but in terms of being in win now mode which i think the colts should absolutely be in win now mode they didn't really do much this offseason and that's why they're only getting a c plus in terms of their offseason free agency grade for 2021 moving on to the jaguars the other team that i mentioned at the top of the segment the Jaguars went into the offseason with the most cap space in the NFL at around $71 million, if I do remember correctly. And unlike their AFC counterpart in the Colts, they were unafraid to spend that money and they got some quality players. Their biggest need was that defensive back and defensive end. And they got multiple players at both positions. Shaquille Griffin coming in from Seattle and Sidney Jones returning will help take pressure off CJ Henderson, who had an up and down year as a rookie. Sometimes he looked really good. Sometimes he looked exactly like a rookie. So those two coming back or rather Griffin coming in and Sidney Jones coming back should help relieve the pressure off of Henderson to be successful right away. Uh, Rayshon Jenkins with a four-year $35 million contract, not necessarily seen as a good signing. Uh, he hasn't really graded the best in his time in LA, especially among other safeties that were available in this free agency period. So maybe it's a scheme fit that Urban Meyer and Joe Cullen are going for here. I'm not sure, but I personally didn't find the signing to be particularly good, especially with who else was available on the market at this point. 
And the 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 more important signing that I want to talk about here is Marvin Jones Jr. They got Trevor Lawrence a number one receiver. This was probably one of my favorite signings of the entire free agency period. Actually, I think Chark and Jones have a chance to be an extremely dynamic duo. A really exciting duo to watch with Trevor Lawrence as the quarterback. And they also brought in Philip Dorsett to help replace Keelan Cole. So, excuse me. It looks like Jacksonville is really creating a nice young offensive core there with some really good wide receivers straight out of the gate for Lawrence to throw to. Sometimes you you get the wide receivers first and sometimes you get the quarterback first and it looks like they're actually getting both at the right time together. And that's extremely important in the development of a quarterback. Even though Trevor Lawrence is supposed to be exceptional, he's supposed to be generational, it's really nice to have that combination of good wide receiver, good quarterback, at least seemingly, supposedly good quarterback right out of the gate. I, I I don't agree with every signing that the Jaguars did, but they addressed key areas of the defense and got a receiver for Lawrence and have themselves set up really well to do uh, a lot of the rest of the signing in the draft. The Jaguars get a B plus. The Texans. The Texans free agency class is probably the textbook definition of quantity over quality. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some really good signings here in additions to this team in the free agency class for Houston, but there's no substantial names. And quite frankly, with how the team has been you know, portrayed as a dumpster fire, no big name free agent should really be wanting to sign with Houston at this point. But as I said, they do have a couple of notable names that are coming in, but no longer are they really considered elite players. Uh, Philip Lindsay, Mark Ingram will at the very least provide an interesting battle in terms of reps at the running back position for Houston. Both players are kind of being pushed out or were rather pushed out from their former regime, either by injury or kind of just by pure replacement. For Philip Lindsay, it was a little bit of both. Obviously, Melvin Gordon in Denver already, and Philip Lindsay was injured for a lot of last season. And then Mark Ingram was pushed out as well by a host of running backs and really <laughs> Lamar Jackson as well. I mean, when you have Lamar Jackson as your quarterback, you don't necessarily need a running back most of the time, but I digress. Um, some other signings on the defensive side of the ball for Houston, Desmond King and Kevin Pierre-Louis will greatly help the pass defense at their respective positions, something that they were relatively bad at last year. I mean, the Texans defense wasn't good across the board, but still, the Texans also added multiple players on the front seven, including a couple of linebackers and defensive tackles. But again, there's no elite signings here, and the upside is that the signings that they do have a couple of Players that you'll recognize that may have something to prove and are looking for something to prove on a new team. They're hungry. They're going to play hard, but it's hard to say if they will make an impact. And there's a lot of signings in this Texans free agency class that are like that. It's it's hard to say if they'll make an impact. So especially with a franchise that's drowning and it could get worse, assuming that they lose Deshaun Jackson either via trade or just having to release him, depending on how these lawsuits go for Watson. Uh, it's, there's no way to tell whether these are going to be substantial signings and whether it's going to truly remain quantity over quality. The Texans get a C for this free agency period. And lastly, for the AFC South, the Titans. Now, the Titans are the first team... <laughs> that I've done so far with this string of segments that I'm really going to take a gigantic dump on when it comes to giving out their free agency grades. Um, I guess let's first start with what they've lost. Uh, they've lost Jonu Smith, Adam Humphreys, and Corey Davis, which apart from Derrick Henry is about three-fourths of the offensive starters at skill positions and really three out of the four of the more talented players on that offense. And that's on top of how I already felt about the, uh, the Titans. I felt that they were way too one-dimensional. I think that they relied too heavily on Derrick Henry. And as good of players as Corey Davis 
and Jonu Smith were, they weren't necessarily utilized enough or maybe not even in the right ways. I felt like the offense was way too reliant on Derrick Henry. There needed to be a better or another wide receiver there at the very least. Now the tight end's gone, two of the major wide receivers gone, and the Titans defensively also released both their starting cornerbacks and their starting safety in Kenny Vaccaro. Now they did sign Janoris Jenkins from the Saints to replace one of those two corners, and but that that's obviously you're still losing one of those two starting corners, which were one of the better duos in the league at this point. The Titans' big signings when it came to free agency came on the defensive end, which admittedly they did need help on. They needed help badly, especially with Jadavian Clowning more than likely moving on in free agency. Uh, their biggest signing was Bud Dupree, signed a five-year, $82.5 million contract. And as I said on the show before, when I talked about this signing before, a lot of Dupree's productivity is due to what system he was playing in in Pittsburgh and who he was playing with. So he was the one person that I kind of identified as being a big-name free agent that I probably would have stayed away from. And I think the Titans just kind of completely ignored that. Not like they would listen to me or anything. Of course not. But that that's not the point. I think I feel like they they took a look at his numbers and completely uh, ignored the other part of the equation as to what kind of defense he was playing in. It was a blitz heavy defense, playing apart from the player that got the most sacks in the NFL last season in T.J. Watt. So I don't think that Dupree is going to be as productive in Tennessee as he was in Pittsburgh, and I think that this is probably going to end up being a bit of a bad signing at the end of the day. I hope he proves me wrong, but the way that I see at this point. I, I think it was probably an expensive, bad signing for Tennessee. And they did also pluck um, Danico Autry from the Colts. But in spite of that, the Titans have lost so many players and have done a really poor job of replacing them. And I don't really like the Bud Dupree signing, so I am going to give the Titans a D plus. And I'm sure that Titan fans are not going to be happy about that. <laughs> but regardless of that, that has been the next installment of giving out grades for every NFL team's free agency acquisition. So we've done the AFC North, the West, the South. That means that you're absolutely correct. We're going on to the AFC East next. We will do that at the beginning of the next show, as we've been doing this segment at the beginning of every show. So make sure that you stick by, stay close, and tune in next time when we cover the AFC East, especially if your team is in the AFC East. So we've already talked about the NBA trade deadline, or at least part of the trade deadline earlier this week. And, well, <laughs> let's be honest, it was more of a rant than it was a conversation about some of the trade deadline earlier in the week. We talked at length about how I felt the Orlando Magic were starting a really confusing rebuild. I felt like it was a panic rebuild. I felt like it didn't make much sense in the context of their season. I felt very much so like the Magic were blowing it up, um, kind of just out of panic. It's like, I guess, in a war when you feel like your information is going to get overtaken by the enemy, so you start burning documents, and then it's like, oh, here comes the reinforcements. And uh, it's like, well, why did you burn all those documents? It's like, well, I thought we were going to be overrun. Yeah, Maybe that's a poor example, but that's essentially how I felt about the Orlando Magic blowing up the farm and trading away everybody. And... The more and more I thought about that deal, the more and more I kind of recognized that, well, the worth of that deal kind of depends on how you view the prospects coming out of college over the next few seasons. I don't think that the, the talent pool is necessarily that fantastic or anything to be excited about. Obviously, things may change, but where, where I'm at right now, it's like... I'm not necessarily sold on who's coming out of college, where if you think that there are going to be great players coming out of college, then you probably see the Orlando Magic trades as a gigantic win for Orlando. 
But regardless of that, there were other trades that happened uh, over the course of the day that I do want to quickly recap before moving on to the main topic for this segment. Uh, the Pelicans trade away J.J. Redick to the Mavericks. I'm not sure that this is exactly the piece that the Mavericks needed to get over the hump, but obviously Redick is a, a lethal shooter and uh, is an experienced player, a good rental at the very least for Dallas. Uh, the Bulls get another big in Daniel Tice from Boston. Rajon Rondo is back in L.A. in a trade with the Clippers. The Hawks get Lou Williams. George Hill goes to Philadelphia. Norman Powell goes to Portland for Gary Trent Jr. and Rodney Hood. That one was a little bit confusing to me. Gary Trent Jr. and Norman Powell are more or less the same player. And obviously Rodney Hood is being moved along there. So I didn't necessarily get that trade in particular. I think they were probably just trying to free up space for a potential trade to, if they wanted to, trade Kyle Lowry, which, of course, the Raptors did not end up trading uh, Kyle Lowry. But the real winners of the NBA trade deadline, the real winners of the NBA trade line, and the team that I wanted to talk about today was the Miami Heat. Uh, Victor Oladipo being traded away from the Rockets to Miami for Kelly Olenek, Avery Bradley, and a pick swap. Now, when the James Harden trade happened earlier this season, I was of the mind that, and looking back, it was kind of a stupid take, but it was it was a relatively hot take that I'm like, wow, okay, the Rockets might have actually won this trade. And my thinking around that was really predicated around how you would use, or how the Rockets, rather, would use Victor Oladipo and what they could get for Oladipo if they, if they decided to move on from him. And I didn't necessarily think that the Rockets should move on from Oladipo. Oladipo has been wanting a home. That's all really Oladipo has been wanting is a place that he can be that guy or the number two guy and stay there for a substantial amount of time because he's been bounced around the league. He's gone from uh, Orlando to Indiana to uh, Oklahoma City, now to Houston and now to Miami. So he's really just looking for that home. And I felt like... You know, if you're trading Karis Levert away for Oladipo and you keep Oladipo plus the first round picks, then that's not exactly so bad. And that was, of course, before, you know, DeMarcus Cousins was released by the Rockets. John Noel was playing extremely well. Christian Wood wasn't hurt yet. But now we're sitting here and Oladipo has been traded to Miami, which when I... I think about a month ago, I made a video saying, okay, well, what should the Rockets do with Oladipo? Uh, after he turned down their contract extension. And I said, look, Miami and Oladipo are uh, a couple of entities that have been flirting with each other nonstop for a couple of seasons now. Don't be surprised if he goes to Miami. And voila, he's in Miami now. But I really kind of just want to praise Pat Riley here for his job at the trade deadline. And, you know, if it wasn't 9 o'clock in the morning right now, I would love to give a large and loud round of applause for Pat uh, for Pat Riley for being the godfather of basketball. He has done it again. Uh, not only has he gotten Victor Oladipo, which will be a valuable addition to a team by itself, a team that really is starting to gel at the right time, uh, a team that has multiple superstars or multiple players on the verge of superstardom, and not only are you going to add Victor Oladipo to that roster, but you were able to get him without trading away Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero, which are your two young upstarts uh, that are really the, I don't necessarily the young life and blood of the Miami Heat. And it's just really smart business by Riley. Uh, you're selling away Avery Bradley, who's been hurt most of the season, and you're selling away Kelly Olynyk, who has 
probably had one of his better seasons because he's gotten more playing time uh, this season. So you're selling away Kelly Olenek at a high point to be able to trade for Victor Oladipo, and you only have to give up the rights to your first-round pick. It's actually a pick swap. So not only do you have to not forfeit away that first-round pick and just you know make it a pick swap, but you're trading away a player that you didn't necessarily need who was having a good season, and you're trading away a player that you signed during the offseason and has been hurt most of the season. And in addition to that move, Miami also traded Chris Silva and Mill Harkless um, to the Sacramento Kings for, um, I know I'm going to butcher his name, Domenia uh, Belicia, I think his name is. Either way, uh, the, the Miami Heat have really been in desperate need of a, of, a, of a four or a five to spread the floor and shoot threes. Now, Belicia has had a disappointing season, so I mean, the, the, the Heat are kind of buying low here. But he has the capacity to be a really good free uh, three-point shooter. He's down to, like, I think 29% this season. But in the past two two or three seasons, he's shot uh, above 40% from three-point range. So that's a really fantastic addition for the Miami Heat. As soon as they traded for Belicia, however, they kind of lost out on the Marcus Aldridge sweepstakes. I mean, the Marcus Aldridge, although he's not that good of a shooter from three-point range, that's a kind of like the idea of the role that LaMarcus Aldridge would have been filling in Miami. But regardless of that... And, you know, and then the final piece to complete the trade trifecta for Pat Riley and the Miami Heat during this, uh, this trade deadline was Myers Leonard to the Thunder for Trevor Ariza, which is obviously a great 3 and D player, very experienced, uh, very tough player. He's going to fit in, I think, to what the mo- the mold of what uh, the Miami Heat are and what they want to be. I think he's going to fit right in. And when you look at all of this, especially with the way that the Heat have been playing recently, they have lost their last two in a couple of close games. But you take that into account to how they've kind of rekindled their season from the the jaws of life. I mean, they were like, what, 12 and 22 at some point? They were playing horrible. They've, they've rekindled their season from the jaws of life, and now they're in a position to probably meet Brooklyn in the Eastern Conference Finals. Now, the Brooklyn Nets just added Aldridge uh, since the Miami Heat decided to trade for Belicia instead. So, I mean, the, the, the Nets just continue to become a basketball prowess, an unprecedented basketball prowess. But regardless of that, you need to realize what Pat, Pat, what Pat Riley has done in Miami and give up a, a metaphorical or, or an acknowledgement of how good these moves were by Pat Riley and acknowledge how well he's been doing in that aspect of the business for so, so long. I'm not necessarily sure how exactly Victor Oladipo is going to fit in with Miami. I think that as as far as pieces are concerned, uh, Ariza and uh, Ariza and Belicia are going to fit in better for what they're needing at the moment. Obviously, Oladipo is a borderline superstar when he's absolutely healthy. So it's going to be interesting to see how that develops over time. The the real winner here uh, is the fact that they didn't have to give up Hero. They didn't have to give up. Robinson, and even if you don't get Kyle Lowry, I think Oladipo certainly is no scrub. You should definitely be happy about that. Um, I also really feel like the Rockets are total losers in this. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of like something that I hinted at beforehand, but essentially all that they've gotten in return for the James Harden deal is multiple multiple first round picks, which is nice. But again, as we started off the segment talking about the Orlando Magic, that that value really depends on what you think the next couple of seasons are going to be like when it comes to college prospects. 
And for the same reason that I felt like, okay, the Orlando Magic are blowing up the bus and they're going to get all these draft picks for picks that might not be as talented due to what's going on in the world and how the college game is developing at the moment, you got to take a look at, at Houston in the same light and say, okay, for this massive James Harden trade, they've gotten Kelly Olynyk, Avery Bradley, and a couple of you know draft picks that may not be as valuable if you know COVID weren't happening in this world. And it's like, uh, Houston kind of got fleeced. I mean, they didn't even get Miami's first round pick. They got a first round pick swap. I mean, Houston kind of got fleeced. Not I, I, as much as I, you know, said beforehand, hey, Houston might have won this trade. That was really predicated on what they did with Victor Oladipo, and I'm not impressed with what they did with Victor Oladipo. So while the Miami Heat were making some earth-shattering moves in the NBA trade deadline, they were making a bunch of ruckus at the deadline in the NBA, the Miami Dolphins, in their own sport, in their own respective league, decided to make some noise as well, shaking up the top 10 draft picks in the NFL draft coming up in April. The Miami Dolphins trading away the third overall pick to the San Francisco 49ers, and received the 49ers number 12 overall pick, a first round pick for the next two following drafts, plus a third round pick, which was the compensation pick for Robert Sala going to become the head coach of the New York Jets. And then the Dolphins, not to be outdone by their counterpart in the city in the Miami Heat, said, we're not done. We're going to trade the 12th, the 12th overall pick. Plus their own first over uh, their their own first round pick next year to the Eagles to move back up to number six, and I believe they swapped six. Uh, excuse me, they they swapped third round picks as well that year. So in conclusion, Miami goes up to six, San Francisco goes to twelve to three, and Philadelphia goes from six to twelve. You got it. Okay, good. So there are a bunch of takeaways here for this gigantic upheaval of the first 10 picks in the NFL draft. A lot of takeaways here. And I guess the first one for me is what a fantastic job by Miami. They probably were going to take a playmaker at number three. They recognized, Hey, there are teams that are going to need a quarterback that are going to be desperate for a quarterback. We can absolutely get some value for our third overall pick. They were more than likely going to take either Jamar, Jamar chase or Devonta Smith at three. Those guys more than likely are going to be available at six, which is where they ended up being, and especially with all the quarterbacks that are looking to be taken within the first five picks or so, fantastic move by Miami, and they confirmed a lot about the speculation that has been going on around the team recently. First of all, they are committed to Tua Tung Viola. Second of all, they are committed to getting him some help, and what they've also done with this move is they've solidified their future in case they make an error. They have multiple first round picks in the next three drafts. They have multiple second and third round picks. I'm not exactly sure of the exact number. But they have multiple picks in the first three rounds for at least the next four drafts or something. It's a it's a substantial number, something that hasn't been done quite this way since the early 2000s. I remember seeing some kind of tweet from Adam Schefter about that. So a fantastic move by Chris Greer. I'm an absolute fan of what he's done with the Miami Dolphins. Because remember, the Miami Dolphins were a 10-6 and team last season. A 10-6 and team that if the AFC weren't so strong last season, they more than likely would have made it into the playoffs. And not only have they committed to their quarterback, not, not only do they appear committed to getting him some help, 
But if they make the wrong decision, they have multiple first-round picks in some subsequent drafts coming up in the next couple of years that can help rectify that mistake if it ends up being a mistake. Fantastic move. Great way to play both sides by Chris Greer. And uh, the 49ers, who have been looking to get into the top five for a couple weeks, reportedly, they were talking with the Falcons, they were talking with the Bengals, but they liked what Miami offered the most. And at this point which is my second takeaway, they're absolutely taking a quarterback at number three. There's no way that they don't take a quarterback at number three. You don't pay this much to move up to three to take a skill position player or an offensive tackle. They must be taking a quarterback, which is very interesting considering that they were very vocal about Jimmy Garoppolo being their guy heading into the season. So what gives San Francisco? Is it faux pas? Is it smoke and mirrors? What's going on? I think more than likely they're trying to accomplish something like Kansas City did in 2017 where Alex Smith was the quarterback. He was the quarterback moving forward. Everybody thought he was going to be the quarterback. And, oh, Kansas City drafted somebody called Patrick Mahomes at, I believe, number 10 overall, which everybody was kind of like, oh, well, Mahomes has a lot of talent, but I don't know if it's worth it when you have Alex Smith. And then they traded Alex Smith, and a Super Bowl victory, a Super Bowl ring later turned out to be the right decision. So you can definitely see your similarities there in terms of what the 49ers are attempting to do now in comparison to what the Kansas City Chiefs did later if they don't end up trading Garoppolo, which, as they said, they said, okay, Jimmy's our guy. If they don't end up trading him, that could exactly be what they're going for. Now, is it very likely that Garoppolo does get traded? Yes, but maybe not until next season. Um, I think it's very likely that he does wind up back in New England, especially if Cam Newton has a poor season this season like he did last season. So very, very interesting to see what the 49ers do with their quarterback selection and what they're going to do with Garoppolo moving forward. I think, well, first of all, if if they weren't comfortable with a multitude of quarterbacks that were available in the top five, they wouldn't have made this trade to begin with. But I think they're probably going after Zach Wilson in particular. Out of all the quarterbacks that could be taken in the top 10, Mac Jones is probably the one that you can eliminate, um, especially based on the division that the 49ers play. And when you think about the defenses in that division, the Cardinals got better. The Rams are perennially the best defense in the league. The Seattle Seahawks always have a pretty good defense. You're going to need a mobile quarterback. Mac Jones is the polar opposite of that. So really, you're focusing on Wilson, Lance, and Fields in that draft selection. And it all goes back to the revolving question that we've been asking, or the media has been asking, for a couple of months now, what do the Jets do with number two? It's all going to come down to what do the Jets do with number two? Do they stick with Darnell? Do they draft Wilson at two? Do they do both? Do they draft Wilson and keep Darnell? Who knows? Joe Douglas isn't going to say anything. As I've said, he's not going to say anything. Douglas is not going to show his cards right up until the draft starts. Not going to show anything. But... If the Jets decide to take a position player, whether it's Panay Sewell, whether it's Devonta Smith, if they decide to take a position player, you can probably hedge bets on the fact that 49ers are going to want Zach Wilson, and if not, it, it's a coin toss as to whether they go for Lance or Fields in that number three spot. And then the third, the third variable in this is the Eagles. I've been very hard on the Eagles recently. I've been very, very critical, actually. I've kind of uh, dumpstered all over the Eagles recently, but I'm actually a big fan of what they've done here. Uh, and, and Howie Roseman has done a good job. Now, granted, they wouldn't have to be moving back in the draft if they didn't get rid of all their good players and the coach. And I see, I can't even make it through <laughs> praising the Eagles without talking about how much I dislike this offseason for the Eagles. But regardless of that, yeah, they're, they're, they're heading into a rebuild. You're going to need picks. 
They need an offensive tackle or a wide receiver. Uh, Jalen Rager is looking like a bust at this point, although I'm sure he's going to need more time to develop. He was injured last year, but Philadelphia fans will tell you, you need a wide receiver, you need a tackle. You can get extra picks for the rebuild moving down the road, which they did, moving back to number 12. Fantastic voice crack, by the way, here, but we're not going to stop. We're going to keep going. Uh, fantastic in getting more picks down the road. They're going to be able to get a really nice player that they're desperately desperately going to need at number 12. Really good job by Howie Roseman here with the Eagles. And really the final point is, who are the big losers in this trade in the top 10? And really you can identify Carolina at number 7. And the Falcons at number four, because the San Francisco has really just cut the cut the lunch line. It's chicken tender day, and the 49ers have basically sold a bunch of kitchen coupons to cut the line and cut in front of everybody else. Now, the Falcons obviously have done substantial work to keep Matt Ryan under contract. They've restructured. He looks like he's going to be the quarterback initially, but they are in the market for a quarterback, and I believe they will draft a quarterback. So. They're the losers. They're not going to get their first choice um, as they thought that they would. And Carolina kind of being now the last person in that top 10, that last slot, kind of get the last pickings uh, from the from the drawer, so to speak. Um, they're going to have to make a decision about whether or not they like a quarterback enough that's left over. They're basically going to get whatever quarterback that's in the scraps, whether it's Lance, whether it's Fields, or whether or not they're comfortable with Mac Jones. Who knows? I'm still of the opinion that Mac Jones goes into the 10 to 15 to 20 slot. He slips back down there. But Carolina having Teddy Bridgewater on contract, expensive contract. He didn't play well that season in the market for a quarterback. They were going to go after Deshaun Watson, but obviously now his future is up in the air on multiple different levels. I think Carolina is a huge loser in this. They may try to take a quarterback, but now it's going to be slim pickings because, again, San Francisco has cut in front of the lunch line. So the top 10 picks in the NFL draft being flipped on its head by Miami, uh, San Francisco, and Philadelphia. What do you think of these moves? What are the Jets going to do? Who's going where? What quarterback is going to what team? I really want to hear your opinion. Please let me know in the comment section below. Wow, a lot a lot to take away <laughs> from a couple of trades. and every, Everything can change, literally at the snap of the finger. And that's the end of the show today, ladies and gentlemen. It's absolutely hot in my room right now, so I am going to move quickly through this outro. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. Watching. <laughs> listening and watching. There we go. It's really hot in my room. Definitely need to cool off. You're listening to the Hard-Headed Sports Podcast, episode number 31, hosted by me, Nick Ryan. And on behalf of that, and with that being said, stay hard-headed, but have a nice day.